You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Good morning, Riverside. It's absolutely wonderful to see all of you. And let me just give a shout out to those of you who are watching online on our live stream. We're so glad to be able to have you with us today. And as Lori just mentioned, we just received the offering and there are digital ways that you can give. You can text to give, you can give online. Best and easiest way to participate. If you're not here with us today, would love for you to do that. For all of you that are here and watching online, listening by podcast, let me invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to continue in the series that we have been in since the beginning of the year. We're in the second of four message series that we'll be in, fully convinced. And this gospel of Mark uh, has really been kind of our roadmap for this series. It's going to take us all the way to Easter weekend. And we've been looking at this series in light of a very, uh, very much a larger theme for the family of Riverside. And so the theme this year for us comes out of what Jesus says in the first century. He said that he had, he had come to give life and to give life to, help me out, to what? The fullest, into the fullest of life. And so we've been talking about, as followers of Jesus, what does it mean to live fully alive? And so we started that series back in uh, this idea of this theme back in September. And in Mark's gospel, we see four major shifts where people are coming, becoming fully alive and what it looks like, kind of a roadmap, as I mentioned earlier, to see it. And so we saw in the first series what it means to be fully called, that Jesus begins all of us to call us to himself. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if somebody's invited you here and they've promised you brunch over at the pub or someplace else here in Oakmont afterwards, we're honored that you're here. And we hope that throughout what you hear today and any time that you're here at Riverside, that you would begin to hear the call of God on your life. Because ultimately, the life that is to the fullest begins by answering the call, by saying yes to that. And then, even though we say yes to the call to follow Jesus, we still have questions, right? We still have issues. We still have answers that we want uh, to get. And so it's a process of becoming convinced. And so that's this series that we're in. And then as we're convinced fully that Jesus is who he said he was, he is and was God's son, and that he gave his life for us, a life to offer us a full and satisfying life, we eventually then are changed and we become committed. And those are the weeks ahead that we'll be in. Today, we're continuing in part four of this series. And as I mentioned, we're in Mark chapter four. Riverside has an app. You can always follow along there in that app. And you're definitely going to want uh, to follow along in the notes today. If you need help finding Mark or if you need a paper Bible, there are some down there in the chairs below you. So Having said that, it's Valentine's weekend, right? Valentine's Day on Friday. Guys, if you missed it, sorry, I got nothing for you. It's a little bit late. If this is the first time you've kind of picked up on that, sorry, man, you're going to have to wait till next year to make up for that one. But I was reflecting back on uh, our Valentine's Days together and unearthed and dug up a Valentine's Day photo for when my wife and I were first dating and I was in the process of trying to woo this young lady. (sighs) Who are those children? I tell you what. This is our 28th Valentine's Day weekend together. And uh, that's how it looked a long time ago. And I actually, it's funny because Pastor Bill and I were texting about this and, and uh, I, I sent him the photo and I said, 28th uh, Valentine's Day together. And he said, one of you has not changed at all. 
Who do you suppose he was talking about there? Because it's not me, obviously. So anyway, 28 years together. And as I was looking at that, that specific photo, I was thinking, you know, you see the flowers, you see the balloons, you, there were chocolates involved. I mean, you know, that's the traditional thing that you do around Valentine's Day weekend. And, and so in, in doing that, I, I was doing everything that I could to win the heart of my future wife, right? That's what we do when we're in those dating seasons. You're trying to do everything that you can to express that you want to be with this person, that you care about this person, that you love this person. And there's almost nothing at that stage that I wouldn't have done to woo her, to draw her, to convince her that I was to be the one. I wanted to get to her first before she figured out that there was a lot better choices out there, you know? I, I got her when she was pretty young. so. Uh, so anyway, I was thinking about that, and then I was reading the text that we're going to be looking at here today, and it just gripped me how the similar, this idea of, of when we're in a dating relationship, or we're trying to make a friend, or maybe you're even in an interview process, and you're trying to put that best foot forward, you're trying to do everything that you possibly can to convince whoever it might be of something that you're wanting to convince them of. I thought about that in light of our, our response as followers of Jesus and trying to help other people experience Jesus for themselves. Because someone did that in your life for you. Someone did that in my life for me. They helped me. And so as we think about this whole idea today, I want to put the question up on the screen. I want to ask you today, to what extent will you go to help others encounter Jesus you think about how far you'd go for your spouse, for your, to, to, on a date, all those types of things, what you would possibly do in pursuing someone. But what about in your relationship with Jesus? And as it relates especially to helping other people begin to find and follow Jesus. Because the text that we're gonna look at today, we're gonna look at two stories. And these two stories, we could easily get caught up in the miracles, and we will. But there's an element to each of these stories that it indicates to us just how willing these people were to help others encounter Jesus. Now, when I think about that, you're immediately, well, hey, for those that I love, I'd go to any length. If they don't yet have a connection to God, in fact, maybe somebody, again, has, has brought you here today, hoping that you'll encounter Jesus. That's certainly our prayer. But think about the people that aren't so easy for you to love. People that... Maybe you're just neutral about. To what extent would you go to helping them encounter Jesus? Or the people that irritate you. Do you have any of those people in your life? The people that irritate you, that frustrate you, that just rub you the wrong way? If you're seated next to them, don't, don't indicate that, okay? Just <laughs> hang on. What about the people that have a different viewpoint than you do? A different agenda, what about the person that sits on the other aisle from you politically? Or the person that cuts you off on the parkway? It's gonna be hard to help them encounter Jesus if you're full of rage and if you're full of anger. And it's a challenge for all of us. Again, for people that we love or like, not a problem. But for the people that we struggle to connect with, that have different viewpoints, different agendas, perhaps even different faiths. They come from different backgrounds. I mean, think about this. What would it take? To what extent would you go to to help a New England Patriot fan encounter Jesus? <laughs> oh, now we're getting real, aren't we? 
So it's easy for some, but it's really difficult for some other people. And so I want the Holy Spirit to have access to my heart, and I've been praying certainly that he would have access to your heart today as we talk about this idea. Because when we're fully alive and when we're fully convinced that Jesus isn't just God's son, but that he is the source of life and life to the fullest, it should change how we live how we operate, and ultimately, how we answer that question. And there are, granted, there are obstacles to this. In fact, for a lot of us, fear is a very real obstacle to helping others encounter Jesus. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid that we won't have the answers. We're afraid that we might look silly or stupid. We're afraid that we might lose our job or that we might be ostracized or we might be left out or we might be rejected. For some of us, we're just too busy. There's absolutely no margin in our life or space in our life for God to be able to help use us to for others to experience Jesus. For some of us, we get really insulated. We get really isolated. We withdraw from culture or withdraw from people. We, we just surround ourselves with people who we would say, yeah, they think like us. They have a faith like us. They worship like us. They vote like us whatever it might be, and, and, and so to help them encounter Jesus is easy, but we've so insulated ourselves and isolated ourselves that we've forgotten what it's like to mix it up with people that are not like us and that need to encounter Jesus. And we don't do that from an arrogance. We don't do that from a pride. We just do it because it's a natural shift in the lean of every person to kind of go to those that we most identify with. And then and I hope this is none of us, but it, but it might be, and I have to mention it, some of us are just simply callous to helping others encounter Jesus. We just, we've reached a place and we wouldn't necessarily say it out loud, but as we allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts, maybe we'd say, yeah, you know what? I kind of just don't even think about it ever. But can I invite you to join me in thinking about that today as we walk through these verses? Earlier in chapter seven, we're not gonna read the whole text together, but in, earlier in chapter seven, what you'll find is that Jesus has broken the oral law traditions of ceremonial cleanness and he's completely ticked off the religious elite. And now he leaves that encounter where he makes everybody kind of frustrated. Again, he's not rejecting the original law that was given to Moses. He's rejecting the rabbinic oral traditions that had been heaped on to the people over and over and over again. And from that conversation, from that encounter, he leaves there and he heads into the northern Gentile territory and associates with a Canaanite woman. He goes up to Tyre, and we'll put it in, it's in your notes, we'll put the, the map up on the screen, because I like for you to know where it is that Jesus is going. It's about 35 to 40 miles north, northwest of Capernaum, kind of that general vicinity where Jesus has been in, right there at the Sea of Galilee. He goes up into Tyre, and Tyre, if you read back through the Old Testament Hebrew scripture stories, that area, that Gentile area, was a very pagan and a very hostile enemy, a bitter enemy of the nation of Israel. In fact, 900 years or so before this encounter, the prophet Elijah actually journeys into this same arena. If you remember the story, Israel was having this huge drought. Wicked King Ahab was going after uh, Elijah, and, he, and he, while he's avoiding the king and trying to survive as the prophet of God in that time, he helps a woman. He ministers to a woman there as well as Jesus is going to in our text today. So with that in mind, I want to invite you, if you would, to stand with me. I'd love to have you stand with me in honor of God's word. It keeps you awake 
And it shows respect for these texts that God has given to us. So we'll begin in verse 24 of Mark chapter seven. It says there that Jesus left that place. Now, let me just say real quickly, that place, according to what the story tells us, is he's in the area of Gennesaret at this time. So he leaves that area and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter, don't miss this, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit, a demon. She came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Let me just pause there and parenthetically say, she's come to beg Jesus because her gods and her goddesses, the Old Testament Hebrew uh, texts tell us that the Canaanites had worshiped just a plethora. Ashereth was one of the primary ones, had failed her time and time and time again. So she leaves that and she comes to this Jewish rabbi, Jesus. And then this next encounter, if you read it from Matthew's gospel, you'll see a little bit more context and I'll explain it. So as I read through this and it makes no sense whatsoever, I'll explain it, okay? But you gotta know that Jesus is having a very uh, a typical conversation between Jews and Gentiles and what happens next. So his response. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the, help me out, the dogs. What? We'll get there. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. Or you could translate that as, with, uh, with this answer, lady, you have passed the test. For such a reply, only two times in all of the gospel accounts does Jesus commend people like he does here for such a reply, only twice, and they're both Gentiles, interestingly enough. He says, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon, help me out, gone. You may have a seat. So, from external purposes, perspectives and appearances, this woman has everything going against her. She's a Gentile. She is a pagan, again, she's been worshiping the fertility gods and goddesses of her region. She's unclean from a Jewish perspective. She's a woman. If you read in Matthew's account, the disciples don't even want her to interact with Jesus. They try to keep her away from him. And if that weren't bad enough, Satan's against her. Her daughter is possessed by a defiling spirit. Now talk about barriers. All of these things are barriers that render her off limits and disqualify her from interacting with a Jewish rabbi. But Jesus loves, as he does earlier in the chapter, in redefining ceremonial cleanness, he loves to redefine and break down the barriers and the walls and the Jewish boundaries of impurity and exclusivity. That's what Jesus is all about. Now, when you understand what, what's happening here, Jesus' reply appears a bit offensive 
and ethnocentric, if you're just honest about it. Children in this text is code language for the Jews, for the Israelites. And dogs is code language for Gentiles, for us. It's a very derogatory term. But in reality, what's happening here is that he's in the process of redefining, reimagining, and convincing his first followers and eventually his entire movement with this story. Jesus is using a very um, contextual idea. He's basically quoting the ideas of the Jewish people. We don't associate with the Gentile dogs. To teach his disciples and his future church not to leave people out. And so in doing so, he uses, he borrows this phrase that, hey, you know, we don't want the the dogs coming to the table. And he's redefining that and letting this woman help him to do that. It's such a beautiful picture of those who have previously been on the outside. Now Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. They now will have the opportunity to receive God's blessing in his kingdom. God had dealt with the Jewish nation for millennia, and now it was time to include the Gentiles, and she was going to be among the first of those people. I love this woman's posture as well. She's convinced. I mean, can you hear the tone? Can you see her words? Can you put yourself in the story of this woman who is a mother? She has an unwavering resolve. She is convinced that Jesus can help her. She's fully surrendered. She comes expectant to Jesus What would compel her to do that? How would she have this unwavering resolve? I think it's a love for a daughter. Absolutely. I think it's the horror of whatever that demonic activity looked like in her little girl. And I think she's got a confidence in Jesus. And so she speaks with him in a very respectful way, in a very humble way. Yet, I love this, she's assertive and she's insightful. And she forsakes her idols. She says, okay, I'm done with these. These have proven to be absolutely helpless in my situation. She abandons her pride and she addresses him as Lord. Notice that she refers to him as Lord. It's the only time in the entire gospel of Mark that someone directly addresses Jesus as Lord. And she acknowledges the historical order. She acknowledges that yes, God for all this time has been working with the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. But she also acknowledges with meekness and persistent faith, and again, a very spiritual insight, that she contends that the page has turned and that Jesus is there to help those Gentiles, and specifically and especially her daughter. And again, think about this for just a second. What wouldn't you do, parents, for your kids? Can you put yourself in this story. How far would you go? I I loved one author and writer was was commenting on this section. He said, there are four kinds of people. There are cowards. There are normal people. It's kind of your day to run of the mill, normal people. Then you have your heroes and then you have your parents (laughs) above and beyond that. What wouldn't we do to help our kids in whatever arena? with their education, with their relationships, with their friendships, with their marriages, with their health, 
all of those types of things with their spirituality. I mean, think about all the things that you would do, the lengths that you would go to to help your child, just like this woman does. And what if we took all of that passion and all of that intensity and all of that intentionality that we would use for our children, and what if we used it to help other people encounter Jesus? Imagine how differently this world could be if we would move past our fear and realize that because we have been made fully alive, we have something not in our own strength and power to offer, but by the power and the presence and the authority and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we went out into this world and we began to tell people about how they could encounter Jesus as we have encountered him. Wouldn't that be amazing? Online, maybe you'll respond. Wouldn't that be amazing? Thank you very much. So she leaves. She finds her daughter is healed. And interestingly enough, this is the only instance in the Gospel of Mark specifically where we find a healing done at a distance. Jesus has so much power, so much authority that he doesn't even have to be present. It just happens at a distance. Now, we continue with verse 31. We'll put the, the map back up on the screen for you there. You can take a look at it. And here, Jesus, the, the, Mark's gonna make an assumption because of who he's writing to. So he's gonna mention a place called the Decapolis. The Decapolis literally means 10 cities. It was referred to in the first century as the Rome away from Rome. It was a place where, again, there were 10 Gentile cities and their worship was centered and focused around Zeus, Aphrodite, Artemis, and Dionysus. And Mark's audience would have known all of this because he's writing, as we told you early on, on behalf of Peter and focusing on the Roman people. That's who Mark wrote to, a Roman audience. Now, this story also only is included in Mark's gospel. So what I want you to notice as you look at that map is pay attention to just how far Jesus is willing to go to encounter people who are in need and not just the Jews. He begins to shift. He begins to leverage this experience with the Gentiles to help expand, and it would take them many years to help them expand beyond their Jewishness into a Gentile culture. But we sit here today, we stand here today because they took this message seriously. And they said, you know what? We don't care about race. We don't care about color. We don't care about age. We don't care about gender. Everyone should have the message and be able to encounter the fully alive Jesus. And so we're gonna go everywhere. How far will we go? Those disciples would eventually say, we will go to the ends of the earth and nothing will stand in our way. Now, having said that, speaking of standing, would you stand again with me? Because you look like you might be sleeping. Now, here's the deal. Online, those of you watching, I want you to stand right there. I know you're in bed, but get up out of bed. I know you might be sitting in your living room. Get off the couch and jump right in with us. Stand in honor of God's word. We're gonna continue to read in verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis, again, the area with the 10 cities. There, notice this, some people, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Again, 
Zeus had nothing. Aphrodite had nothing. All the gods and goddesses hadn't been able to heal this guy. So they come to a Jewish rabbi and ask him for help. After he took him aside, so Jesus is going to kind of try to do this as best as he can in private, away from the crowd, then he's going to do all these weird things. And stick with me, it'll make sense. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. So at the end of our time together, we're gonna invite you to come and pray. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so Jesus is using a kind as word, and he's not done yet. He's using a way of communicating. It's like a sign language. He gets into this man's world, and spit was something, saliva was something that was revered and used in all kinds of crazy options to heal. Jesus is not suggesting that this would really work. He's using the context and the culture of his day to help this man understand what's happening here because he cannot hear and uh, he's not able to respond. So he looked up to heaven and with a, help me out, with a what? A deep sigh. In other words, he moans with this man. He groans with this man. He identifies with his pain. He said to him, and help me out one more time, be open. Say it with some conviction online. Be opened. You can translate that as be released. The creator of the universe who knows how this man is wired is right there and he's changing this man's life right here in this moment. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened. You could say the bonds were broken. The chains were shattered and he began to speak Plainly. That word for plainly is the word ortho. We get our word orthodontics, orthopedics. It means straight. It means right. He begins to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. And they didn't listen. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. So you didn't tell anybody. Uh, Jesus would tell them, don't tell anybody. And they would just go and they would just do the opposite of what he always told them to do. So as a result, people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. He has done everything beyond measure. You could translate it as, he has done everything in the extreme, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Be opened, Jesus says, because some people brought this man to Jesus. You may have a seat. So again, Jesus is going to identify with this man. All that touching and all that spitting in the mouth, it's like, again, like I said, a sign language. He came in to this man's world and he uses nonverbal speech so that he could understand. And Jesus, I love this, Jesus gives him dignity. He gives him privacy for this miracle. He pulls him aside. No more public spectacle. This man would no longer be neglected. This man would no longer be overlooked. He would no longer be ignored. And I love simply what it says, some people. In the original language, that means some people. We don't know their names. We don't know who they were. In fact, you may be in heaven someday in eternity, and you may walk by and you may hear those people telling the story, yeah, there was this day we brought this. Oh, you're the some people. We don't know. We don't know who they were. Just that they had compassion, just that they had concern, that they had care, but they pushed past those feelings of just feeling sorry for him, and they actually took action. 
They didn't just pity him. They did something. And when we're convinced, we point with every opportunity, everyone, to Jesus. Now again, our natural tendency is to look at the miracle and to see the authority and the power of Jesus on display. And I'm not discounting that today. I'm inviting you to acknowledge that, to see that, to embrace that, but to align in your own mind who are the people like this blind man, like this mute man, who need to be brought so that they can encounter Jesus. And they're looking for you to be the some person, for me to be the some person in their life. Why do they do this? Why do they bring this man to Jesus? I love what it says. They, they were overwhelmed with amazement. The reason why is because Jesus does everything well. That phrase, he has done everything well, is the exact same idea that's found in Genesis chapter one and verse 31, where all of creation is completed. And God the Father looks at it all and he says, it's good. The creator is now walking among the people of humanity and they're saying of him, it's good. What this man does, it's well done. And he offers us not just ministry that's well done, not just healing and miracles that are well done. He also offers us a hope of a full and satisfying life. And that can be your experience today if you've never experienced it. Now, Something else that's at another layer here that we just don't see with our Western eyes is that Jesus is, uh, is fulfilling the prophecies and the expectations of the Messiah. Mark deliberately signals to his first readers this idea and certainly to us as well today when he uses the specific word that he uses for that phrase, deaf and could hardly talk. That phrase in Mark's original language is used only one other place in all of scripture. It was recorded 700 years earlier at a time when Israel was in captivity and the prophet Isaiah was speaking to the nation of Israel. 700 years earlier, I wanna put it up on the screen, Isaiah chapter 35, and I'll point out to you where the, verse, where the word comes in in the verses, but let's read this together. Just follow along with me. Say to those, so God is speaking and, and to, through Isaiah, say to those with fearful hearts. Now let me just pause and take a, just a quick moment because as I was praying, even this morning, I felt like this was what the Holy Spirit was wanting to say to somebody here in this room watching online, that you, you came today and there is a, there's a fearful heart. Maybe you wouldn't have put it in those words, but there is something that you are full of fear about right now and it is gripping you it is crippling you, and you need to hear these words that were penned nearly now, nearly 3,000 years ago, that the Holy Spirit might want to drop into your heart to help you face whatever it is that you're fearful about right now. Listen to the words of the Lord. Be strong, be strong, be strong, and do not fear. Your God will come. I don't know who that's for. That was spoken in the in 700 years before Jesus, and it was relevant to those people today, but I believe that the Holy Spirit can apply that to your heart today. And maybe that's, you came today and you got what you, were, you needed right there. For the rest of us, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. Then it's gonna shift. We start to cringe, stick with me. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. 
He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. Notice this, remember our stories. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and here it is, and the mute tongue. That mute tongue is the exact same word that Mark uses, signaling back to this prophecy. The mute tongue will shout for joy. There was this idea in the Jewish nation that when the Messiah came, that there would be a healing, that the lame would walk, that the mute would be able to speak, that the deaf would hear, that the blind eyes could see and the graves would be opened and Jesus over and over and over and over again. Mark is trying to convince his audience and us today that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has all power, all authority, all glory, and he's able to meet your need and mine right where we find ourselves. He still is in the business of doing this kind of work. Now, reading this, I want to give some credit to Tim Keller, pastor and author. He had some great comments about this specific text in Isaiah that I want to kind of share with you as we wrap this up, keeping both of these stories in mind. Notice there, as, as we read through that, that it says that he's coming with vengeance, with divine retribution, or divine punishment. But interestingly enough, as you read about Jesus coming, he's not smiting anyone. He's not lashing out with a sword. He's not taking power. Rather, he's actually giving power away. He's not taking over the world. He's serving it. So where is the divine retribution? Tim says this, he didn't come to bring divine retribution, divine punishment. He came to bear it. For me, my sin, and yours. Here's what Tim says. At the cross, Jesus identified with us totally. On the cross, the child of God, keeping in mind well, we've just read the conversation that Jesus has had with this woman. On the cross, the child of God was thrown away, cast away from the table without a crumb, so that those of us who are not children of God could be adopted and brought in. Put another way, the child had to become a dog so that we could become sons and daughters at the table. Speaking of what Jesus did in taking on my sin, my worst, my ugliest and yours as well. And Jesus, because he did this, he identified with us like this, we now know why we can approach him. The son became a dog so that we dogs could be brought to the table. He became mute so our tongues can be loosed to call him king. So don't be too isolated to think that you are beyond healing today. Don't be too proud to accept the good news of your unworthiness and mine. Don't be too hopeless to accept what the gospel, what the good news of what Jesus did for us says about how loved you are. So it's as if Mark is saying to us as we wrap this up, he knows what the people are looking for. It's as if he's saying, you know, when you're reading through this, do you see the blind opening their eyes? Do you see the deaf hearing? 
Do you hear the mute tongue singing for joy? God has come to save you. Jesus is king. God, through Jesus, is trying to show you just how far he will go so that you can encounter, so that I can encounter, so that those of you watching online can encounter the risen Christ and be made fully alive. So what will you do in response? What will I do in response to this? Who needs your help to encounter Jesus? Who needs you to be their advocate? Who needs you to point them to the only one who can offer full, true, satisfying life? Will you, have, will you ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, as I live fully alive, fully alive, will you give me the eyes to see those? Will you give me the ears to hear those? Will you give me the perspective to be aware? Would you help me to have margin in my life so that when the opportunity arises, I might be in a place and positioned with a spirit of humility to come like that woman did on behalf of her daughter, to come like those some people did on behalf of this man who could not do for himself so that both that girl and that man could encounter Jesus. Could that be said of us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for going to the ultimate lengths and sending your son to bear our sin so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made right, find healing, and be made whole. We're humbled, Jesus, by your call on our lives and your patience with us as we become convinced that you are the source of life to the fullest. So Lord, would you please fill us with the same kind of urgency to help others encounter you that the woman and that the some people had that we've read about in our texts today. Father, would you forgive us for keeping the good news of your love, your grace, and your mercy hidden. Forgive us for that, Lord, if we've hidden it in any way from those around us. Holy Spirit, would you prompt us to action and move us to step into the hurt and into the pain that others are facing. Lord, I pray you'll minister to those who may find themselves more like this man, more like this young lady who were in desperate need of healing, were desperate need of restoration and being made free. So now as we respond in song and in prayer, would you move among us? Would you walk among us? Would you speak your words over us as we worship you? In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.